My name's Aaron, if we haven't had the privilege of meeting, and, and I have the, the honor of walking with you through week six of our series called Equipped. And really what, we're, what we've been doing for the last six weeks, and we'll continue doing so for a number of weeks after today, is looking at spiritual disciplines or, or practices that really when you, when you zoom out, what you discover is that people have been putting into practice for thousands of years and what these spiritual disciplines have helped followers of Jesus like you and I do over the course of those thousands of years is actually develop spiritually healthy lives. It's helped pe- they've helped people become spiritually healthy followers of Jesus. And so um, when it comes to disciplines, really I think what you could think of when, when you think of disciplines is disciplines really are kind of like a means to an end. Uh, A discipline is a habit that you can form today that over time it'll give you the ability to do something that you can't currently do. So you can think of them as a means to an end. So just like weightlifting is a means to developing uh, greater levels of strength and running is a means to developing greater levels of endurance, the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. Only, Only they're a little bit different. They diverge from other disciplines in that They're not so much focused on helping us develop new abilities as they are focused on helping us access a power that is far greater than the one that we currently possess. Um, And and here's why. Here's why. Spiritual disciplines, really, when you boil it down, there are means by which we create time and space to connect with God at the deepest level. And that's where the power source comes from. A theologian by the name of Dallas Willard wrote a book on spiritual disciplines, and uh, here's what he had to say. He says, the disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and our being into into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. And so I just want to highlight what our goal has been throughout this entire series. And it's really this, to help you as an individual and to help us as a community of God or a church family discover and practice these spiritual disciplines so that we can be be molded and shaped and formed into a greater likeness of Christ Jesus, both individually and as a church family. And so today we're going to look at a spiritual discipline that I think you're probably more familiar with than you realize. I'd even take it as far to suggest that you've been practicing this to some degree or another your entire life. And the reason I say that is because this particular spiritual discipline is tied to something that I'm convinced everyone is looking for, and it's contentment. I think everyone to some degree or another is on a search for contentment. And even though everyone's on this this, this universal search for contentment, what I'd like to offer is that not everyone is going about it in the same way. And so whether you're content or discontent right now, I just want to ask you to consider, I just want to ask you to consider that the kind of contentment that you're really after, that you really desire, that you really want to experience in your life, would you consider that it's permanent? You want it to last you want it, you're looking for the kind of contentment, I think, that, that can't be sabotaged by a pandemic or a personal health crisis or a divorce or any other trauma or loss that we might experience in this life. And, and if you're anything like me, I think here's what we're challenged with. And, 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 and I, I feel like I've done this more times than I really am willing to admit or perhaps I'm even aware of, 
that I have spent a vast majority of my life searching for lasting contentment in things that just don't last. And so would you just agree with me, consider this, that it's kind of unreasonable to look for something that's lasting in things that don't last? Isn't, doesn't that sound unreasonable to you? It, it, it's, it seems unreasonable to me. And so um, here's what I think. I think the fact that you and I experienced, experienced discontentment, I think that serves as evidence that the kind of contentment we're looking for is infinite. And I think infinite desires need infinite solutions. And so the spiritual discipline of contentment, really what it is is it's a pattern of life that can help us find the contentment that we really desire. And I think uh, Psalm 131, which is what we're going to look at today, what I think about that psalm is that it offers us a model for practicing the discipline of spiritual contentment. If we look at it, I think what what we're going to discover is this pattern of life that in a sense has helped people for thousands of years not just discover contentment, but continue rediscovering through all the twists and turns and plot twists that we experience in this life. So go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 131 and listen to what it says. It says, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too difficult for me. Instead, I've calmed and quieted myself like a little weaned child with its mother. I'm like a little child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Uh, so this psalm, just, just for, to give you a little bit of context, was written around 1025 B.C. That's actually when it was inserted into the Psalter. And, and what, it's, what it's been is a part of a series of other songs that, that, in effect, have been a part of Israel's or the people of God's playlist for thousands of years. And what I mean by it's been on their playlist is so um, somewhere about a thousand years before Jesus came, the people of God would gather by the thousands in Jerusalem, and what they would do is they would sing psalms like this one, all for the purpose of recentering their lives on God and to take the time to remind themselves and each other of the great hope that they had in God. And Psalm 131 was always on their playlist, and I really what I want to do today is just put it on ours. And so in order to do that, um, I want to show you a, a, a few things. The first is this powerful picture of true contentment that I think it's kind of hidden in these verses, but it's there. Uh, secondly, I want to I take a peek. I want us to take a peek at the vivid transformation that we can experience in our lives when we actually find the contentment that we're looking for, or true contentment, in other words. And then lastly, I want to show you a pattern for practicing the spiritual uh, discipline of, of contentment in our own personal lives. And so this begs the question, what, what is true contentment? In order to answer that, I want to I approach it in two different ways. First, I want to share with you some personal misconceptions that I have when it comes to contentment. I think you'll find them relatable, and perhaps you've even seen some of these misconceptions in your own life. And then secondly, I want to show you the vivid picture of true contentment that I see in Psalm 131. And so, so when it comes to misconceptions that I have about contentment, here's, here's one. Here's one for you. Um, I live my life sometimes in a way that, that, that if you were looking in the window, you would draw the conclusion that the secret to contentment is found in my circumstances. Now, I, I do think it's honest for us to admit that our circumstances can and do influence 
the way that we feel. In fact, I would wager that if you're content right now, chances are the wind's blowing at your back, things are going your way, you're hitting all your goals, your relationships are healthy, you're not being pinched financially, things are going well for you if you're content. I'd wager that. And see, what I think is true when it comes to our circumstances is that they should, they should drive us to a place of gratitude. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a place in 1 Thessalonians that actually tells us as followers of Jesus to be content in all circumstances, not just the ones that are going well. But what I think is also true is that our circumstances should never be the basis of our own contentment. And here's why. There's a real danger in that. There's a danger in making our circumstances the basis of our contentment because they're so volatile. They change all the time. And so the, the, the other thing that they, they're very incapable of doing, at least this has been the case in my life, is they're a terrible litmus test for, for actually discerning what God is actually doing in my life, especially when the pains that I'm experiencing outweigh the gains that I think I'm experiencing in my life. And, and I think there are so many times, whether in the Old Testament or perhaps in your life personally or in the New Testament, all through the Bible, where we are we're confronted with God's unique ability to take what was intended for evil and to use it to accomplish his good purpose in our lives. There's a, real, there's a really powerful story. Um, there's, all, there's a number of powerful stories, but this is the one I landed on for today. It's in a book called The Hiding Place. Maybe you've heard of it. It's written by a woman by the name of Corey Tenboom, and here's what, here's here's how it goes. Corey and her sister Betsy, um, during World War II, they found themselves in a concentration camp north of Berlin. Uh, in Barracks 28 is where they were held, and the reputation that that place got was as the crazy place where women have hope. And 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 if you were looking in the window of of those barracks, or you were looking across the, the fence of that concentration camp and you were looking at those living conditions and you would have smelled the stench of suffering and death that they were subject to day in and day out. And, and, and then to top it all off, th- these barracks were infested with fleas. You wouldn't have drawn the conclusion that they were women of hope by, by sheerly looking at their circumstances. And, 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 and it, but but here's, here's what literally took place there. God used this infestation of fleas to create space for something powerful to happen. And that didn't become clear until some time later uh, that God was using the fleas to create space for Corey and her, and her sister Betsy to host worship services that were literally transforming lives, that were delivering hope in the face of darkness and unimaginable evil. Now, eventually, they did discover this, and and what's cool about the book is Corey takes the time to record a conversation that her and her sister had, because initially, when they discovered this infestation of fleas, um, Betsy thanked God for the fleas, and as you can imagine, Corey's response to that was just one of perplexion, and she said, how could you thank God for the very thing that seems to be adding curse on top of curse that we're already experiencing. But here's what, here's what Corey says in her book about the conversation they shared. She says, Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas, that's what she said, that place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remember Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. 
Look, the, the, the whole point of me telling this, that story and the point that I'm really driving at is that the reason true contentment will never come from our circumstances, the reason we're told to give thanks in all circumstances is because God only ever uses our circumstances to shape us in the, into the people that he's called us to be, even the ones that feel like a curse. And so a contentment based on our circumstances will never be capable of freeing us from the weight of our circumstances. So that's one misconception. Another one that I have um, is that sometimes I live in a way that suggests that I believe that the secret to contentment is denial of and distraction from my circumstances. And I'm not, I'm not certain that I'm the only one that's ever rationalized a toxic situation or a toxic relationship by really just denying how bad things are. And really the, the, what I'm driving at is when we do that, um, when, when we compensate for our discontentment through denial, that's just not the same as contentment. I think contentment that's based on us trying to find the silver lining or compare our situation to something more troubling or traumatic really only ever leads to deeper senses of cynicism than it does deeper levels of contentment. You see, I, I'm convinced that I need, and I'd, I'd suggest that maybe you need it too, a contentment that transcends our circumstances, not one that forces us to live in denial of them or distract ourselves from them. And so let me be really clear about what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that creating space between you and the chaos of your life is not something that you need. I'm not suggesting that that's intrinsically bad. In fact, I would wager that you probably need to unplug and rest a whole lot more than you're actually doing right now. But what I am suggesting is that I have yet to find a Netflix binge or a vacation or another distraction or fix of any other sort that has only ever helped me to self-medicate only to be reawoken to the startling reality that everything I distracted myself from or denied was right where I left it. And in some cases, things had actually gotten worse. Right? So the point that I'm making is if you're looking to the silver lining or the next vacation or the next getaway or the next fix, whatever it might be for you to deliver a lasting contentment in your life, I think you'll probably discover what a woman by the name of Anne Peterson discovered. She highlighted it in, in her book called Can't Even. <laughs> I think that's a funny title to a book. But, but the subtitle is How Millennials Became the Burnout generation. And in the book, she critiques the $11 billion, more than $11 billion self-actualization industry um, and, and its inability or the inability of a spa day to really cure what ails us. And here's one of the conclusions that she draws for our culture. This made a lot of sense to me. She says, as a culture, we're beginning to understand what ails us. And it's not something in oxygen facial, which I've never had, <laughs> or a treadmill treadmill desk can fix. I really would love to have a treadmill desk, just saying that to whoever's listening. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to put my, my hope in it. But, but here, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm getting at. This is when I get into the mode of denial or detaching myself from the chaos of life, I think, I think what I should do is ask myself a simple question. Is it reasonable for me to make a vacation a relationship, or a fix of any other sort, the source of my greatest consolation. History in my life stands 
to show that that never works out. It never leaves me in any other place than feeling deeply disappointed and bitter. So the kind of contentment I believe that we're looking for, it doesn't come from denial. It doesn't come from distracting ourselves from our circumstances. I think where it comes from is having something at work in our lives that's independent of our circumstances. And so there's some misconceptions that I've wrestled with that I will probably continue wrestling with for the rest of my life. Um, I'm pointing them out because I think there's a chance that you've been wrestling with them too. But more important than that, what I really want to show you is that the spiritual discipline of contentment is a way that we can take control of our misconceptions instead of being controlled by them. And I think the best way to combat a misconception is with the truth. Would you agree with that? And so to help us do that, I want to show you this picture of true contentment that I see in Psalm 131. It's in verse 2. It says, I have calmed and quieted myself like a little weaned child with its mother. I am like a little child. And so the idea that I believe this, this verse points to is that true contentment comes from having something at the center of your life that frees you from the weight of this life. True contentment doesn't distract you from it. It doesn't force you to deny it. It actually will free you from the weight of this life. And here's what I'm getting at. I think, I think we're all looking for a contentment that's permanent. And the only way to get a contentment that lasts is to base it on something that's permanent. And the problem that we have is that we're constantly looking for a lasting contentment in things that don't last. And here's what happens when we do that. We give our circumstances that we're only ever intended to shape us, power over us. And so because God is the only one in the universe who transcends our circumstances, nothing less than God at the center of our lives can deliver the kind of contentment we need. And this is what, Paul's, or this is what David's writing about in Psalm 131. And, and if you were to take the time to investigate his life, what you would discover is, is that from an early age, his life was marked by unmet expectations disappointments, disillusionment, depression, and even moral failure. He was a terrible king at times once he became king, and at times he was an even worse father, husband, and friend. Yet he's discovering this kind of contentment that's functioning as the antidote to all the counterfeit types of contentment that we chase after. It's not tied to circumstances. It doesn't force us to live in denial. It doesn't force us to distract ourselves from what's really going on in our lives. Instead, it gives us access to the power of God and the presence of God in a way that calms and quiets our souls and actually frees us from the weight of this life. Look, the message that I see behind uh, David saying, I've calmed and quieted myself like a little weaned child with its mother is that. And I'm a dad of five, and um, <laughs> what that doesn't mean is that I'm an, like, what it doesn't mean is I'm an expert, because I'm certainly not that. What it does mean is I have a lot of experience. What it also means is I probably have made way more mistakes than you. Just throwing that out there. Uh, things compound the more people you add to the mix. So thanks for listening to my TED Talk. I'm going to continue. Um, but, but here's one thing that I've noticed with each of my girls when they were infants, right? Um, when they cried for Sarah, which is their mom, they never really just wanted her to hold them. They wanted to eat. 
right? And so they get all fired up, and they're screaming that hangry baby cry, and they're kind of like death rolling like a crocodile, and they're crooking their neck, and they really want to eat. If you've seen this, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They didn't just want to sit in their mother's presence. They needed something in addition to their mother's presence. Um, but, but, but all that changed. All that changed, and it has changed now that they're older, and uh, they can kind of make their own toast, avocado toast they can make. Amazing, right? But they can feed themselves now. And so what, what I see now is there are routine times where they just climb into Sarah's lap or they lay next to her in bed, and they just want to be in her presence. And the reason for that is there's something powerful. There's something peaceful about being in their mother's presence. And what David is really showing us is what the power and presence of God can be like in our lives. He's saying that it's a power, it's a presence powerful enough to free you from the weight of this life, and it's capable of embracing you in a way that makes you feel protected, loved, and accepted. So when David says he's calmed and quieted himself like a little child, what he's showing us is that the spiritual discipline of contentment is it's the conscientious effort, the same effort that a little child makes to climb into their mother's lap to put your ultimate desire on God and to put all other desires in their proper place below God. This is something you have to practice. And I think that as you learn to rest in God's power and presence, it will actually break the power of your circumstances over you and begin freeing you from the weight of this life. You see, true contentment comes from having the infinite God at the center of your life because he's the only one capable of freeing you from the infinite weight of this life and fulfilling the infinite desire for contentment that we have. So we've talked about what I believe true contentment is, but now I want to show you how it can transform our hearts. I want to show you how it can transform our vision or the way that we see other people, and I want to show you how it will actually transform our way of life. Um, So first, true contentment can transform our hearts. Take a look at verse 1. Here's what David says. He says, Lord, my heart is not proud. And you've probably heard us say this before, but the word heart here really, really just means the control center of your life. In other words, whatever is at the center of our lives has the most influence in our lives. It actually has the most powerful influence in our lives. It's It's what gives you significance. It's what will give you a sense of hope. It has the power to motivate you or to deflate you. It has the power to direct and move you in ways that you may not even be aware of. And so if you want to get to the bottom of what actually is at the center of your life, I think a good place to start is to to just do a simple inventory of how you spend your free time, how you spend your money, your thought life, what you do when no one's looking your attitudes towards people who disagree with you or don't believe what you believe. When David says, my heart is not proud, uh, the reason he's able to say that is because he's taken a self-inventory. He's searched his heart, and, and he's been brutally honest with himself about what's actually there. And he's admitting, he's indirectly admitting that, he, that he's lived much of his life driven and controlled by his own self-centered pride. And he's discovered that that way of life never really leads to anything other than exhaustion. And when we live a self-centered, prideful life, it injures everyone in our path, especially the people that we love the most. 
And so here there, there were two things, two things that were at the center of David's life. They were like his two hopes. They drove him. They gave him significance. And, and it's really what he had built his life on prior to beginning to build it on the power and presence of God. And these things were always referred to as his glories. And when something is described as a glory, um, biblically speaking, what it really means is that's what that person is looking to for significance and hope. And so when David had, by the time he had written this psalm, everything he had centered his life on had shattered. His first great hope was his love of his son Absalom, which he had completely lost when his son launched a coup and put David on the run as a fugitive. And when David became a fugitive, he had completely lost the acclaim of his people. So everything in David's life had shattered, yet it didn't shatter him because he had learned to shift his hope from things that were shakable to the unshakable God. And what this shows us, at least I think this is what it shows us, is that until we identify what's at the center of our lives and replace it with an unshakable God, we run the risk of building our lives on things that cannot deliver the type of contentment that our souls create or crave. From my vantage point, practicing the spiritual discipline of contentment means taking the time to discover what's at the center of your life and replacing it with God. I see that as the only means by which we can actually free ourselves from the weight of this life. And as that happen, as that happens in our lives, I think what we'll discover is that it actually changes us. It'll transform our hearts. And we, like David, will be able to say, Jesus, my heart's not proud anymore because you're at the center of it. So true contentment can transform our hearts, but it can also transform our vision. Um, take a look at verse 1. This is the, uh, the middle portion of verse 1. It says, my eyes are not haughty. And now, um, haughty eyes, really what they are is an outward expression of an inward sense of pride and superiority towards people. This is what causes us to include some and exclude others. Uh, this is also what causes us to, to it, it's what really gives us this attitude that causes us to approach people by calculating what we can get out of them rather than determining how to love and serve them. And the point that, that really this drives at is that until we find our ultimate contentment in God, we tend to look at people, this could be subconsciously or consciously, as a means to our own selfish ends. I think this is the reason why pe people manipulate each other. I think it's the reason why we, we, we leverage influence when we have it. I think it's the reason why we conceal the truth when the truth can put us on the hot seat. But practicing the spiritual discipline of contentment means allowing the way that we view people to be shaped by how God views them. And in case you were wondering, there aren't any caveats. People don't have to agree with you or believe what you believe or see things the way that you see them for God to see them as infinitely valuable. And what's evident in David's life is that he's learned the type of contentment that's freed him from the need to leverage and abuse his power as king, and now he's actually been empowered to start loving people. And loving people well, I think, is evidence that something shifted in David's life. And I think when you find yourself loving people well, it's going to be evidence that something's shifted in your life as well. There were so many times in David's life that he took advantage of people by leveraging his authority. And I would wager that you probably have leaders in your life, bosses, people, maybe parents, maybe relatives, 
um, that have done the same thing that David was doing. But I just want to pause there for a second and say that if, if we allow ourselves to believe that somehow we're beyond that or above that because we're not kings or politicians or CEOs or leaders, I just want, you to, I want to ask you to consider this. Um, in, in cultures like ours that place a really high value on individual needs and wants, I think we run the risk of defining love as an affection for or an attraction to someone or something. Let me tell you what I mean. When we say we love something, most of the time what I think we're really saying is, I want to have that. I want to consume that for my own pleasure. I want to take from it and not give to it. And when we have anything other than God at the center of our lives, people become another thing that we use for our own personal gratification. I have a good friend that he spent a number of decades counseling professional athletes. And one of the things that he discovered through his work is that there's a deep skepticism amidst professional athletes when it comes to people. And, 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 and I, think, I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason is because of their place in society, they have a hard time distinguishing between who's approaching them for what they have and who's approaching them because they have a deep care for them. All right, and I, I think we've all experienced shades of this in our life. I think that we've, we've, we've either approached people for what, they can be, what benefit they can bring to our lives or what we can get from them. And I think some of us have been approached like that. We've been used by people because of the benefit that we afforded them. I just want to point out, and it, regardless of, of what the case is in your life, I just want to point out that God's, God's design for relationships is not, it, it's the end towards which our relationships are moving by way of God's design is never for personal gain. God elevates sacrificial love as the highest ideal amidst his people. And so what I think this verse is really showing us is that when we find contentment in God alone, it frees us from the need to manipulate people, to look down on people, uh, or to do this. I think this is extremely unreasonable, to put the unreasonable expectation on a person in your life as if they're responsible for your sense of contentment. I think that's entirely unreasonable. I think that puts a, a, too much pressure on someone else. It's a pressure that they can never deliver on. But here's what it empowers us to do. It, it empowers us to begin seeing people the way that God sees them. as infinitely valuable and worth our love, commitment, care, and worth giving up our own rights and privileges for. So, so I've shown you how true contentment can transform our hearts. I've shown you how it can transform our vision. Uh, but now I want to show you how it can transform our way of life. Listen to what David says next. Still in verse 1, he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And what David is really getting at is that he's found, he's discovered a better way to carry the weight of this life. That's what the word concern means in this context. He's found a way to live that's not exhausting it's life-giving, and here's why it fits his nature. There's a freedom. There's a freedom that he is experiencing in discovering or coming to grips with who he really is. And what's really intriguing about this is he's not determining that for himself. He's not defining for it for himself. He's allowing God to define that for him. And I realize not everyone likes that idea because it sounds, you know, really, really like old school or it sounds constraining or it sounds... Controlling. So I really just want to, if that's what your mindset is, I just want to offer you something here 
Um, I'd like to take to just take a second to address that because I do think that there's a mindset in our culture that says that the key that unlocks freedom in our lives is found in us establishing our own identity, our own destiny, or our own truth. And I think, um, I think to a degree, this belief finds its root in our infinite desire for contentment. I just feel like it, it diverges. Um, it diverges from what what I have to offer you this morning and in, in how we actually find that contentment. Because it, it suggests that we find true contentment by following our urges, our impulses, and our interests. And I don't think I, don't think I have to do a whole lot of convincing to tell you um, that your urges, your impulses, and your interests don't always yield the best outcomes. I'm just saying mine haven't. Some of my biggest mistakes were me responding to an interest, an urge, or an impulse. Maybe you've experienced the same thing. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you probably have. Um, But most of the time, and here's why, most of the time, I don't even think we really realize uh, what the decisions we make today are actually capable of yielding tomorrow. And so if that is the case, if it's really hard for us to determine by way of decisions today the outcomes that we're going to experience tomorrow, I think at best, here's what we'll experience if we follow urges, impulses, and interests. We'll just follow a series of leads, only ever hoping for the best. But that's not even the biggest problem I see with this this mindset. The biggest problem I see is that it assumes that every one of our problems exist outside of us. And that internally, somehow, we have the wisdom and the insight that it takes to author our own story. That somehow we hold the key to contentment in our own lives. And if that's something that you believe... That's fine. I just, I just want, I, I want to offer something that I think is worth acknowledging. I think that that's, that way of life is excluding. I think it's exhausting, and I think it's debilitating. Um, a, a really long time ago, actually back in the 13th century, there was a philosopher by the name of Thomas Aquinas, and here's what he said when he was speaking to this mindset. And, and the question he was answering is, what would it take to satisfy our infinite desire? And here's what he answered. He, he gives one word. He says, everything. What, in other words, what he was really saying is we'd have to have everything. We'd have to win the affections of everyone. We'd have to hit every goal. We'd have to achieve every award. We'd have to travel to every place. We'd have to do everything. Aquinas wasn't suggesting that that was actually possible. What he was driving at was, was the point that our desire for contentment is infinite. Yet we are on this continual plight searching to fulfill an infinite desire with finite things. And this is why our discontent can be so chronic. I think it's kind of like an itch that we just can't scratch. And no matter how much we see, do, buy, sell, accrue, acquire, experience, I think eventually we find ourselves in the valley of discontentment again and again. And so the point I'm driving at is looking for contentment this way, it's exhausting. Because if you're looking for something you can't find, you just get tired after a while, right? It's a perpetual search for permanent, something permanent by way of impermanent things. And here's why it's debilitating. Eventually, we find that we don't have the poise. We don't have the prowess. We don't have the intellect. We don't have the endurance to actually find what we're looking for. And here's why it's excluding. You don't have to look very far to see this. Not everyone was born into the same situation. Not everyone has access to the same resources. Your disadvantages 
while they might be similar or different than mine, my advantages are different than yours. The point is, if we have to carry the weight of deciding who we are, and then on top of that, finding our own destiny, I find that to be exhausting and something that eventually would just crush me rather than free me from the weight of this life. But David had found a way to carry the weight of this life that's life-giving because it's not based on the instability of where he was born or his ability or his education level or his gender. It doesn't demand that we discover who we are. It actually just honors our nature, and it gives us a stability and an identity that's not built on gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, because none of those identities can give us what we actually are looking for, because I think we need something that's a little bit more stable than economics. It's more stable than politics. It's more stable than, than your gender. It's more stable than your national identity or your sexual orientation. I think we need something that's stable enough to withstand all the plot twists, all the ups and downs, all the turns and the traumas that we experience in this life. And so when David says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, He's pointing out that there's a type of contentment that can free us from the need to compare ourselves, to live up to the expectations of other people, to see ourselves through the lens of success and failure. He's saying there's a freedom in coming to grips with your weaknesses and understanding your limitations. There's a freedom, and the type of freedom it, it really provides is it frees you from the pressure of trying to have all the answers. And it comes as we develop an understanding as, uh, that, that we're people designed in the image and likeness of God, who because of that, we have this infinite desire for contentment that only an infinite God can meet. And I think when we discover that, you can actually start evaluating yourself a little differently. You can evaluate yourself and hear criticism in a way that shapes you and makes you better rather than deflates you and destroys you. Look, I don't feel like I need to convince you that there's a spiritual an emotional weight to this life. I, I think wise people for centuries, for thousands of years, have been pointing this out in, in some way, shape, or form. And I think we're coming to, to, to deeper grips that no new technology, no substance, no pill is going to save us from a weight that we feel like is crushing us. But the contentment David found, what it didn't do is it didn't make his life easier. It just gave him an entirely new way to carry the weight of this life. And it's life-giving. And here's why. It doesn't depend on his ability. And it doesn't depend on his intellect. And it doesn't depend on his performance. It's completely dependent on God. And I think if we want to experience the contentment and the transformation that David experienced, I think we should ask ourselves the question, how do we get it? And so that's what I want to do with the remainder of our time, these last few minutes. And I think the answer is pretty clear. It's in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Israel... Put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. Um, so when, I, when I reflect on my childhood home and my upbringing, uh, I, the culture I was raised in, the schools I attended, the degrees I have, the, the places that have really shaped and influenced my understanding of hope, what, I can, what I've concluded is that my understanding of hope by way of all those avenues really is more just like an anxious wish than it is an unshakable certainty. It's, like a, it's almost like this I hope it works out philosophy of life. Um, and what that is is so fragile. It's so fragile. And, and even, even though there have been times in my life where what I hoped would work out 
actually worked out, those things never provided the stability that I actually need. Uh, They never provided a stability that lasted for more than a brief season. And so when it comes to, I think you know this already, when it comes to placing our hope in ourselves, other people, our finances, our career, our health, I think hope can only ever be uncertain. And I think that deep down, I don't think I'm the only one that has this sense, I think you have this sense too, that deep down, you know that everything in this life has an expiration date. The best careers, the strongest relationships, the greatest sports dynasties, the most amazing lives, our bodies. Shoot, (laughs) I hate saying this out loud, I'm gonna be 40 this year, and uh, I'm not celebrating. I'm starting to see things that I can't unsee. Uh huh. I got a lot more respect for for people that are on the older end of the trajectory, which that's where I'm headed. Y'all are killing the game, and I hope I can learn everything I need to know from y'all. But the point that I'm the point that I'm getting at is that this this reality, this troubling reality, is something that we are confronted with every time we lose someone we love, or every time we experience something that shakes our reality. And what David has been pointing out all along, at least this is what I think he's been pointing out all along, is that his life has been riddled by looking for an unshakable hope and shakable things. And the way that he phrases this, word, this verse, he's talking to an entire nation when he says Israel. He's talking to an entire nation of people. The way that he phrases that leads me to believe that he's suggesting that everyone has the same tendency. And if what David is pointing out is true, and if you're really serious about your own well-being, and you're really serious about living in a way that, give, that leads you to the degree of spiritual health that you really want, here's the question I think you should ask. It's the question that I'm asking myself, and I just want to offer it to you. Is what I'm looking for for ultimate hope stable enough to free me from the weight of this life? Is what I'm looking for for ultimate hope stable enough to free me from the weight of this life. What I'm really trying to point out is that this is, this is something you already sense, if you're being honest. And, and you know that if we don't have something outside of this life that gives us a hope that's more stable than anything in this life can actually provide, the weight of this life just becomes more and more unbearable. And this is what David's found. And it's the source of contentment that transformed his heart it revolutionized the way that he loved people, and it, and it reshaped his way of life in a way that freed him from the weight of this life. And everything David says about the contentment he's found and the transformation he's experienced and the hope he has, here's what I think it points to. I think it points to Jesus and the way of life that Jesus offers. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus Uh, is recorded uh, saying something. And what he's saying is he's really offering us an invitation into his way of life. And so I just want to ask you to listen, listen to the words of Jesus here. Here's what he says. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The humbleness of heart, the gentleness toward people, and the rest that David experienced, I think it was just a small taste of what Jesus can provide for us more fully 
when we take up his yoke. You see, um, the, the, the word yoke probably doesn't really register or resonate with a lot of people, but, but back in Jesus' day, and Jesus was a rabbi, and so back in Jesus' day, every rabbi had a, had a yoke. And really what a, what a yoke was was a way of life that a rabbi designed to help his followers carry the weight of this life. And so I, I, I read something recently that for me, it, it really just unlocked the meaning of Jesus' yoke and I, I want to share it with you. There's a theologian by the name of Frederick Dale Bruner. And here's what he says about the invitation Jesus is offering us to enter his way of life as we take on his yoke. He says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what, what, we, what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to him will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we've been living. The, the, the way of Jesus doesn't lead to denial, and it doesn't force us to distract ourselves from the chaos of our lives. It actually is capable of breaking the power of our circumstances over us because it gives us the power to face any circumstance. It gives us an unshakable hope that nothing in this life is capable of doing anything more than shaping us into the people God intended us to be. And, and I, I, there, there's a couple more things I want to say as I wrap up, and I want to invite the worship team back on the stage as we do that. Um, and I, I really just want to show you why, the un, why, the, why, why Jesus' yoke is easy and why the burden of Jesus is light. And here's why that is. Here's why it's easy, and here's why it's light. Through Jesus' death, he faced, he completely faced the weight of this life. He completely faced everything that weighs us down. He completely faced everything that has resulted from humanity turning its back on God. Jesus completely faced the weight of this life through his death. And, and, and he set us completely free from the weight of this life through his resurrection. And so when you, when you look to Jesus and you start to see that Jesus completely forfeited his contentment in order to secure yours, here's what I think will happen. I think it'll calm your soul like nothing else can. And when, I, when you see Jesus' resurrection from the dead as a living hope, as, 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 and you start to see what it means, and you see that it means that the only result that anything in this life can yield for a follower of Jesus is resurrection, I think that'll give you a hope that's a living hope. I think it'll become an unshakable hope, and I think it'll take root in your life and shape you in ways that you didn't realize were possible as you come to grips with the fact that nothing in this life is capable of taking away what Jesus secured for us when he faced the weight of this life and when he proved that the weight of this life is powerless to take anything from us. And I think you'll come to grips with the fact that, 
Um, and in 1 Thessalonians, when we're told to give thanks in all circumstances, I think you'll come to, come to, come to realize what Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy realized in that concentration camp. That sometimes, sometimes the very thing that seems like a curse in our lives is what God is using to change our lives, to transform our lives, and to make us into the people that he's called us to be. Look, I think that true contentment comes from having Jesus at the center of your life. And I believe that because he's the only one that's proved, him, proved himself capable of freeing us from the weight of this life. And when that happens, I think it'll transform your heart. I think it'll revolutionize the way that you love people. And I think it'll revolutionize your way of life. And rather than being weighed down by the weight of this life, you'll live in a way that's life-giving. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I just want to thank you for, uh, for how faithful and, and how committed you are to people like us. People who, when we're really, really honest, will realize that we've spent a vast majority of our lives looking what you, only you can offer in things that have no ability to bring the life and the hope and the transformation that we really, really want. Jesus, help us to become a people that practice the spiritual discipline of contentment by placing you, like replacing whatever's at the center of our lives with you, Jesus. And Jesus, when that happens, help us to experience transformation. We're asking you to transform our hearts. We're asking you to revolutionize the way that we see and love people. And we're asking you to help us take on your yoke and live life in a way that you've designed us to live it in a way that actually frees us from the weight of this life. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you're capable of using anything for good. You're capable of using what was meant for evil for good, and we're asking you to help us to be better at seeing that at work in our own lives. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you as the source of true contentment. In your holy name, amen.